Anyone who believes that a seventh son is destined to become fortune's favorite would have expected great things of a little boy born in Cheapside, London, and baptized with the name of Robert, one August day in 1591. And Robert didn't disappoint them. Fame, fortune, and not a little scandal followed his steps, for he had a talent for wit, gaiety, and lyrical phrasing that made him renowned in his own day, and brings him down the centuries to share a rightful spot near your own Yule Log fire. But before we follow an adventure of some 500 years ago, let's tarry a moment in the present tense to consider this holiday season and the good things in store for it from this friend of ours. Herrick was the seventh child. The good luck he had coming failed to put in a prompt appearance. A year after he was born, his father died. A suspected suicide. Not that this had any connection. It is to be hoped with young Robert's arrival. But Robbie's luck changed. He and the rest of the children were taken in by his uncle, the richest goldsmith in all of England. And Robert wound up going to Cambridge and meeting up with a company of young gallants, more famous for their wit and escapades than for their studies. Herrick's own wit soon made him a popular member of this select circle. And even the great Ben Johnson noticed his scintillating talent and proclaimed that he adopted him as his poetical son. After Cambridge, Herrick was off to London, a town never gayer before or since. For those were the days of the Cavaliers, when affairs of state were never more serious than the latest play at Drury Lane Theatre. And yet Herrick's poetry echoed the times when he wrote, Gather ye rosebuds while ye may, a poem that ended up on a practical note, advising, while he may, go merry, for having lost but once your prime, you may forever tarry. Naturally, Herrick soon found himself in the center of society, where courtiers, poets, playwrights, and actors mingled with nobles and kings. And, like other men of his talent, his art was at the command of King Charles I, for whose entertainment he wrote a Christmas play called Hesperides. King Charles reciprocated in an unexpected way. 
he presented Robert Herrick with a vicarage at Dean Pryor. A poet turned minister. A playboy set down in a quiet, dull country lane. And how did Robert Herrick like it? Not so well at first, but in the end he began to enjoy the pastoral quietude. And it was there that some of his finest poetry was written. There's no question at all but what his congregation enjoyed him. His sermons were florid, witty, and sometimes fiery, and brief. Since brevity is the soul of wit, one of his congregation, when an old woman recounted with glee that Robert Herrick, when his flock was inattentive, had on one occasion picked up the pages on which his sermon was written, glared at them, and then literally threw the sermon at them. Robert Herrick entertained his country neighbors in Paris just as he had entertained the court. And he entertained himself, too, with wildly varied, varied pursuits. A bachelor, he filled up his house with pets. One of them, a small, clean little pig, he solemnly taught to drink ale from a tankard. But destiny was closing in on Nicholas Herrick's seventh child. The Puritans were on the march. Cromwell overthrew the king. The king, loyal to the end of the church he believed in, was executed. And Herrick, loyal to the end of the king he believed in, was ousted from his country parish. Had fortune forgotten this seventh child? Not quite. Once England tired of the bloody bigotry of the Puritans and clamored again for a king, Charles's the first second son, Charles II, claimed the throne. And Herrick had his quiet vicarage back again. Fortune gave him more than that. Though for a long time, Herrick's poetry was forgotten. It was rediscovered in the late 1700s and has gained in favor ever since. And part of his poetry comes to your Christmas. A carol that appears more and more frequently in carol collections and hymn books. A carol that perhaps you have sung. A carol written as part of Herrick's play, Hesperides. Sung first of all on a Christmas in the early 1600s at Whitehall for a king.
Yes, the songs of Christmas make pleasant listening. And so do the glad tidings like these from a friend of ours. Christmas stars are gleaming in distant skies tonight. But one alone is beaming with a distinctive light. The star that led the wise men, that led and guided them upon that midnight journey to the star of Bethlehem. The star that still reminds us that years ago one morn, an infant in the manger unto the world was born. And so we have our Christmas, a day of kindly thought, of peace and loving kindness that Christ's sweet presence brought. A day of self-forgetting when all mankind seems kin because the Christ-like spirit on this day enters in. This gift unto all nations, the gift of God's own Son, makes each returning Christmas a glorious, precious one. it's reassuring to find the same thread that leads us to a German story of a boy too curious for his own good also reveals a German Christmas custom that is a cheerful contrast to that old grim superstition about talking animals that lay a curse on those who listen. In fact, Germany has such a cheerful custom that it's one worth borrowing. Before Christmas, some of the family carefully split open walnuts and inside hide trinkets, coins, or little slips of paper with fortunes of consequences on them. Then these nuts are mixed right in with the rest of the nuts in the nut bowl to be enjoyed on yuletide evenings around the fire or after the Christmas feast. When you crack open a nut, you never know whether you're going to get a real thing or a surprise present or a forecast of your future or perhaps a slip of paper that commands you to do some ridiculous and laugh-provoking stuff. A happy way to add merriment to the season.
And another way to add merriment to your Christmas season is from this word of a friend of ours. was a leper, a figure to be loathed and avoided. It was ironical in a way, for John had been a rich man, and yet now none would touch money he had handled. He had gold in his pouch. He wore a pendant jewel worth a king's fortune, and yet he could not buy anything. None wanted his money or his jewel. He could live only by arms, tossed to him as one might toss a bone to a dangerous caged wolf. And as for lodging, he hadn't slept on a bed in years. Who would loan a bed to such as he? So on the night when the stars shone over Bethlehem, he was, as usual, shivering and slumbering fitfully in a dark alleyway. But tonight his dream seemed more troubled than usual. He thought at first it was the cold that roused him, and then he realized it was the brilliant light. Amazed by it, he stared at the star. He was so intent, he almost failed to see the three shepherds until they were almost close enough to touch. Hastily, he cried out, warning, unclean, unclean. The shepherds exclaimed pityingly, but all the same, they circled wide about him, walking clear out into the center of the cobbled street so they would not brush against him. They seemed to be in an excited rush to get somewhere. But all the same, the youngest of them paused to look back at John. It's a cold night, he said. Perhaps you could get some warmth out of this sheepskin cloak. John reached out and felt the soft warmth of fleece in his hand. Not knowing exactly why, he followed them a few paces, and he paused at the corner, wrapping the warm fleece skin about his shoulders. Strange. After all the hurrying, they didn't go on to the inn, but stopped at the stable. After a moment, they went in, and John shrugged, but curiosity got the best of him. After the shepherds came out and went on down the path, he went on to the stable to see what had brought them there. There was a simple little family, a tired man, a pretty young mother, an infant child. The shepherds had talked of a child, talked of bringing gifts for a child who would be a prince. Forgetting who he was and what he was, John was carried forward by a strange impulse. 
He must see that child, must touch him. There. There by the manger was the crude pot of wild honey the shepherds had left. Perhaps he too should give a birth gift. He reached for the chain at his throat and roughly ruled off the brilliant jewel he always wore. Kneeling beside the manger, he held it out where the light would catch it and brighten it for the child. And the child laughed, and warm, rosy fingers reached for the gem and closed around the leper's thumb. It was only then that John remembered, and with a cry of dismay, shame, and horror, he jerked his hand away. Stunned, he looked at it. But now, the flesh that had been rotten and repulsive was clean and firm. Wondering, he touched it with his other hand. Both hands were clean. He felt his face, looked at his feet. His flesh was as firm and wholesome as that of other men. In the stable where the little family smiled at him, he wept and he prayed. And once outside, he turned his back on the town that had spurned him. Into the hills he went, pondering the miracle that had come to him. Truly, he thought, this child is from heaven. He brings something new, something as yet undreamed of, into this world. And as John stood on the hill, three shepherds climbing into the highlands passed him by. The same shepherds? He wasn't sure, but from the distance he heard one of them say, I swear that was the man. He had a fleece skin around his shoulders, the skin of a black lamb, just like the one I gave the leper. Ha! <laughs> scoffed the older shepherd. Your flock isn't the only one wherein you can bear a black lamb. Besides, if that's the man, where is the jewel he was wearing? You're a fool, but you're young. You may outgrow it. The man we saw was a leper. This one is of noble bearing, even a prince perhaps. Since when do lepers become princes? Tonight, replied the young shepherd, I can believe anything. The stars burst forth full-born into heaven, and that a son of heaven can be born on earth. Then lepers can be clean of skin and clean of soul. And the leper, knowing himself to be the first afflicated man of a son of heaven, had touched listened and smiled in the silence of the night.
In a moment, I'd like to talk briefly about Christmas candles. But first, before we get to the candles, let's talk about gifts. And it's a good idea to let this friend of ours enter into this part of our conversation. on Christmas Eve to lighten the lonely road. But who will the warmth of his fireside leave to carry another's load? Bright candles in windows that shine afar and tell of his wondrous birth. But who has a house with its door ajar for strangers who walk the earth? Bright candles in windows this holy night, dispelling the darkness drear. But who in his heart keeps a constant light to gladden the live long year? legends surrounding Christmas and many superstitions, most of them going back hundreds of years. To look into some of them, there are a whole host of legends and superstitions surrounding cattle. One widespread belief is that at midnight on Christmas Eve, the cattle fall on their knees in honor of the Christ child. It is said that Christianized Indians in America believe that at that same time, the deer kneel in worship of the Great Spirit. To skeptics, the believer has a handy, proven fact ready, which is that cattle have been seen on their knees on Christmas Eve. Similar to the belief in kneeling cattle, cattle is a belief prevalent today in the Greek Orthodox Church, that on Christmas Eve all trees and plants, and particularly those growing on the banks of the Jordan River, bow in reverence to the Savior. A story is told about this that a man rode into Lida a little before midnight on Christmas Eve and tethered his horse to a palm tree which was lying flat on the ground and which he assumed had been blown down by the wind. 
But when he came back the next morning, the tree was standing erect, and the animal thereby had been hanged. A somewhat unpleasant superstition, once prevalent in part of England, Germany, and France, was that oxen could speak on Christmas Eve. But of all tales that were overheard, none was ever pleasant to the listener, for it usually foretold his sudden death. In Scotland, in the days before the Reformation, it was thought that cattle and horses must be protected from the evil eye on Christmas Eve. This being accomplished by the owners going to the stables and saying, Ave Maria, and a paternoster. That about covers our legends and beliefs concerning animals in the world of Christmas on Christmas Fantasy.